This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Kaufman of the Institute for Health Policy Studies here at UCSF. Welcome to our Osher Mini Medical School course, Health Policy in 2022, Restoring the Health and Well-Being of Californians. And before we get into our material tonight, just want to pause and acknowledge the announcement that 1 million Americans have died from COVID-19. And this is a you know, very sobering statistic uh, that speaks volumes to the ways in which COVID-19 has changed our lives over the past two years. Uh, our course um, is to in, intended to enable you to learn from leading health policy researchers about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on diverse aspects of our health and healthcare system, including how we make policy decisions based on evidence, how and from whom we receive care, and how we deal with the consequences of the choices that people have made to cope with the pandemic, some of which are, are not so healthy, and how we can protect uh, those among us who are most vulnerable to COVID-19 and other diseases and conditions. Uh, tonight, uh, our lecturer is Professor Rita Hamad, who will be speaking on how we can bolster the safety net for those most impacted by the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Hamad is an associate professor here at UCSF. She's a social epidemiologist and family physician affiliated with the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies and the Department of Family and Community Medicine. She's director of the Social Policies for Health Equity Research Institute program. Her research focuses on the pathways linking social factors such as poverty and education with racial and socioeconomic disparities in health across the life course. Uh, in addition, Dr. Hamad is Associate Director of the Center for Health Equity and a member of the Steering Committee for the UCSF Population Health uh, Data Initiative. Uh, in addition to her research, she mentors trainees at all levels in population health and health equity research and supervises family medicine residents at the Hamley Health Center at San Francisco General Hospital. So with that, I am going to turn it over to Dr. Hamad to give her lecture. Thank you so much for that introduction and welcome everybody. Um, Janet, as you were saying all that, I was remembering that the last time I gave one of these was two years ago, the pandemic had just started and we were sort of scrambling to figure out how to do all of this on Zoom and now we have it down to a science. So. Um, yeah, and I'm glad that we can do it virtually so that people can attend from anywhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, as was mentioned, um, I am going to be speaking today on uh, how we can bolster the safety net for those most impacted by the pandemic. There we go. Okay, so um, just as an overview of the topics we're going to be covering today, first, uh, we're going to talk about the economic hardship caused by the pandemic and specifically which groups were most affected. Next, I'm going to be describing some of the safety net programs that were put into place to buffer vulnerable families from these hardships. I'm then going to go through some of the early evidence about whether these programs were actually effective. 
After that, I'm going to describe what more needs to be done in terms of both research and policymaking. And then we're going to wrap up with some conclusions and implications for the future. So to start with, it's important to note that the pandemic caused widespread economic hardship. This graph shows unemployment rates in the U.S. over the past 15 to 20 years. And you can see that the peak during this entire period was in April 2020, when unemployment hit 14.8%, and that eclipsed the unemployment rate of 10% during the Great Recession. And this was driven by closure of many workplaces in response to early shelter-in-place policies that were intended to reduce transmission. And it was also driven by school and childcare closures. Some workplaces, like mine, uh, allow for flexible work hours and remote work, as well as job-protected leave. Um, but my family could juggle work and parenting, and many did not have that privilege, and they had to leave their jobs to be able to care for their kids, even if it meant they were losing crucial income that they needed for food, housing, other expenses. So this figure, um, we see that first unemployment figure, but split out by an education level. And this shows that the people who lost their jobs were those who were already the most vulnerable. You can see that peak unemployment was a staggering 21% for those with less than a high school education, and it was only 8.4% for those with a bachelor's degree or more. Those with lower educational attainment tend to have less savings, more precarious housing, so that unemployment meant that they were losing really critical income to be able to sustain their families. Similarly, this is the percent change in number of jobs by wage level. This one goes from February 2020 to October 2021 when some jobs had already been recovered. Um, but while the average was 2.5% across all industries, this was most concentrated in low-wage industries with a 4.5% decrease compared with a, sort of a negligible 0.3% decrease in high-wage industries. Again, this is thought to be due to multiple factors. While strict shelter-in-place policies were no longer in effect by last fall, a lot of people still had challenges returning to work. Continued infections were contributing to supply chain disruptions that hit low-wage industries the hardest, and we still had childcare disruptions that kept people from being able to rely on regular care to be able to go back to work. I've mentioned childcare disruptions a couple of times now, and that's thought to be a major contributor to why the pandemic also caused greater hardship for women as a vulnerable group. Due to societal gender norms and because of wage inequality, that means that women often are paid less than men, the loss in jobs was greatest for women. And this is across all races and ethnicities, as you can see here. And this shows that job loss from February to June 2020, women, the pink bars, had two to four percentage points more jobs lost compared with men who are in the red bars. And what should also jump out at you here is the huge differences by race ethnicity itself. White people experienced on average about 8.7% loss in jobs compared to 12 to 15% for other races and ethnicities. And again, this is multifactorial, but it's partly driven by historical employment discrimination and other manifestations of structural racism, which result in people of color occupying a greater percent of low-wage and service industry jobs that were more likely to be cut, especially during this early phase of the pandemic. At the same time, people of color are also more likely to hold what we now call essential jobs, um, so that those who did remain employed were at higher risk of COVID-19 infection. So the job loss results in real-world consequences for these families. Here you can see that um, in September 2020, about six months into the pandemic, the percent of people having trouble paying basic household expenses was 48 and 45% among Black and Latino families, respectively, 
compared to 25 and 26% among white and Asian families, respectively, which is still high, but we just see stark racial disparities. And as you can imagine, this translated into higher rates of food insecurity, hunger, stress, other health issues. You know, there have been a lot of studies over the past few decades that talk about the ways that income, savings, economic insecurity matter for our health. And so just to quickly define these terms, income is how much money you get on a weekly or monthly basis from your job or other sources of income like investment income or safety net benefits, while savings is how much you're able to put into your bank account or under your mattress or wherever uh, for a rainy day in case you lose your source of income. Both of these contribute to the ability to afford food, healthcare, housing, other household resources, and economic security also reduces stress and supports people's mental health. And then all of these contribute to improved physical health. So for many vulnerable families um, who are suffering a spell of unemployment or are otherwise economically disadvantaged, safety net policies serve as an important resource to boost their financial resources and other household resources. And during the pandemic, there were actually a host of safety net policies passed at local, state, federal levels to buffer families from economic hardship. And we're going to talk about some of those next. So this figure um, is intended to be overwhelming and unreadable, so please don't try to make out each word. But what it illustrates is the huge number of policies implemented during this period. It plots out a timeline. You can see it goes from March 2020 to November of 2021. And on the top half there are policies implemented at the state level in California, and the bottom half are at the federal level. And the boxes are color-coded based on whether they were intended to address COVID-19 infection in green, safety net policies in yellow, housing policies in red, or school and childcare policies in blue. And so you can see scattered throughout that there are quite a number of yellow boxes or safety net policies passed at the state and federal level to address a lot of these aspects of pandemic-related hardship. And I'm next going to describe a few of these policies to give you an idea of their breadth and their scope. I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list of all of these, but just highlighting some of the largest programs. So first, a lot of the types of benefits involve cash payments of various types. So to start with, many of you are probably familiar with stimulus checks, and those were sent out to most American households in three rounds spread out over the first year or so of the pandemic. Um, in July of 2021, the child tax credit was also temporarily expanded, uh, and it began to provide payments to nearly 90% of American families with children. It included larger payments than the child tax credit had provided in previous years, and it expanded eligibility to include low-income people, and it had fewer restrictions on immigration status than previous versions of the child tax credit. Unemployment benefits were also increased, including not just the dollar amount of the benefits, but also the duration for which people could be eligible. And finally, Certain employers were also required to provide their employees with paid sick leave to care for themselves or their family members, whereas before the pandemic, the U.S. was the only high-income country in the world not to offer this benefit to all employees. So unfortunately, a lot of these programs were not super comprehensive. The expansion to the CTC expired in uh, December 2021, despite the fact that nearly all high-income countries also have something similar to this benefit in the form of a basic uh, cash allowance to support families. Um, and this typically acknowledges the importance of investing in children and especially those from economically disadvantaged families. For the unemployment and sick leave benefits, many people were not eligible. Um, so gig workers don't typically qualify for unemployment and many employers were exempt from providing the paid sick leave. 
Unfortunately, these employees also tended to be the ones who were already the most vulnerable and, and had precarious jobs to begin with. Um, and in any case, this paid sick leave has also expired, even for those who were eligible while it was in effect. Another type of benefits that were provided through safety net programs were food programs. One of these was the Pandemic Electronic Benefit Transfer Program, or uh, Pandemic EBT, and this one provided grocery vouchers for the value of school meals lost due to school closures to students who would ordinarily qualify for free or reduced price meals at school. Another one was SNAP, or food stamps, as it was formerly known, uh, and this was also expanded to allow for a greater dollar value of the vouchers. WIC uh, is a program for low-income pregnant and postpartum women and children under five. And this, um, this one was expanded in terms of the value of the vouchers that were given to purchase fruits and vegetables. And finally, for a lot of these programs, there were efforts, efforts to make enrollment easier. A lot of these are notorious for making applicants jump through a lot of difficult hoops um, to get the benefits. So for example, WIC typically requires participants to show up for an in-person interview, and this was waived for the pandemic. So there are also other types of support that were provided to struggling families. Um, for example, the federal government passed several eviction moratoria, and that prevents renters from getting evicted um, if they can't pay their rent. And this was strengthened and extended in several states, including in California. There were also changes to Medicaid, which is the health insurance program for low-income Americans. And the changes prevented people from losing their insurance during the duration of the public health emergency. And finally, there were also grants to provide childcare, sorry, uh, grants provided to childcare providers um, to help them stay open and pay for personal protective equipment, PPE, during the pandemic. So as I noted, some of these programs had their flaws and almost all of them have expired at this point. And so to decide whether they were worthwhile and perhaps should be revived or changed, it's important to know what kinds of impacts they had while they were in effect. So this chart shows the impacts of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, which was the, that first one passed in March of 2020, and this one included stimulus checks and unemployment benefits for millions of Americans. Here we have the monthly poverty rate plotted out for 2019 and 2020, and the dotted line that you see is the poverty rate that we observed after the CARES Act was passed um, down here, and the solid line shows what the poverty rate would have been if the act had not been passed. And you can see that the poverty rate would have been nearly 20% without the benefits provided. Um, and the improvements were short-lived and poverty crept up um, and started to exceed 2019 levels, um, but the, the, it definitely had an effect when it was first implemented. So this figure focuses on poverty rates. And in this next figure, we're gonna look at how this translates into actual economic hardship experienced by families. So here we see the impact of the American Rescue Plan Act, um, which passed in uh, March of 2021, as well as a round of stimulus checks that happened in December of 2020. Um, and so these outcomes that we're looking at here are difficulty covering expenses in blue, whether people are not caught up on their rent and whether they didn't have enough food to eat. And you can see a small dip in each of these um, markers of economic hardship in December after the stimulus checks and a much steeper dip, uh, drop in March with the more robust economic support provided by the a ARPA. This next figure looks at the impact of the child tax credit on difficulty paying expenses. 
Again, this was implemented in mid-July 2021. So this chart compares families right before the CTC was implemented in blue and then after in orange. And you can see that, well, let's start over here on the right, households without children, we don't see a real effect of the policy, which is expected because the CTC was targeted towards families with children. And here in the middle, you can see that households with children, which already had a lot more difficulty paying expenses than other households, that there was a substantial drop in these difficulties after the CTC was implemented. And here we see um, similar figures, but looking at how the CTC resulted in a drop in food insufficiency also. Again, no real change for households without children, but a major drop among households with children who had much higher rates of food insufficiency to begin with. And so what this translates into is reduced hunger and improved child health for millions of kids nationwide. Because again, this um, benefit was available to up to 90% of American families with kids. As I mentioned before, unfortunately, the CTC expired um, and Congress has not been able to agree on making the program permanent. So this means that poverty and hunger among lower income families have shot up again. Um, and this also means the U.S. is again among the only high income countries without a child allowance for families with children. And we have actually the highest child poverty rates of nearly any high income country at about 20 percent. Let's move on to another pandemic related policy, and this one is the eviction moratoria. Again, these policies ensured that renters would not be evicted if they were unable to pay their rent due to pandemic-related economic hardships. They prevented millions of people from becoming homeless during the pandemic um, or experiencing housing instability. And in addition to the federal policy, a lot of states had additional protections. So this study examined the effect of these state protections on renters' mental health. It found that people who lived in states with stronger rental protections, and those are the darker green, had lower rates of psychological distress than people in states with little or no protections. So this means that the eviction moratoria had their intended effect, at least while they were in place. The flip side is it also means that millions of Americans living in states without strong eviction protections had high rates of psychological distress and presumably related to that more economic uh, insecurity and more food insecurity. So the next policy we're going to assess is paid sick leave, and we're going to see how it affected food insufficiency among different groups of people, depending on their household income. So the dark orange represents people who did not have access to paid leave when they were sick or caring for a sick family member, and the light orange is people who did have access to the benefit. So over on the left, you have people making less than $25,000 a year. And among those who didn't have access to paid leave, a staggering 49% experienced food insufficiency. This was still really high, but down to 34% when they were able to get paid while they were out sick for those with access to the benefit. And we see similar patterns for other higher income groups. And interestingly, or strikingly, even 11% of the highest income families who are making more than 100,000 a year still experienced food insufficiency when they didn't have access to paid leave over here on the right. And this dropped to 3% for those who did have access to paid leave. And you can imagine that what many people when faced with this choice would choose to go to work when they're sick so that they could avoid going hungry or having their children go hungry. And, um, and in fact, other studies have found that paid leave policies reduced COVID-19 transmission in workplaces because people then were able to afford to stay home. Again, many employers were exempt from providing this benefit 
for employees. And this policy has since expired. And that means, again, the U.S. is the only high-income country and one of less than 10 countries in the world without a paid sick leave policy or a paid family leave policy for workers. All right, finally, we're gonna look at the effects of one of the pandemic era policies that made it easier logistically for people to enroll in safety net programs for which they were eligible. So in this case, we'll be looking at WIC, which again, uh, provides food assistance to low income pregnant and postpartum women and kids under five. The vertical uh, red line is March of 2020, and that's when women and oops, sorry, uh, that's when women and children um, could enroll in the program by completing their enrollment remotely rather than showing up to an in-person interview. So you can see in yellow that monthly participation um, increased dramatically after March 2020. And just to, for a frame of reference, WIC participation has been declining since 2009. So this is like a, a turnaround in the rates that had been um, present before this. Um, and this is not just because there were new beneficiaries who were qualifying because of low income uh, or pandemic related economic hardship, although that is part of the reason. But if you look at the dark blue line, this shows recertifications among existing beneficiaries. So this means that the policy change made it easier for participants who were already on the program to keep their benefits. This figure, as you'll see from the title, uses data from Southern California, and unfortunately, this pattern does not hold up in all parts of the U.S. A lot of states still required participants to show up in person during the pandemic to either load benefits onto their electronic benefits WIC cards um, or to receive paper vouchers because not all states at this point had transitioned to an electronic system. Even before the pandemic, we know that only half of eligible pregnant women and a quarter of eligible children age four participated in WIC in part because of the hoops that participants have to jump through as part of the application process. And we also know that people have to complete separate complex for applications for every safety net program they want to enroll in and that there is no single streamlined application. So I've shared some studies that have looked at the health effects of some major state and federal policies during the pandemic, um, but there are many policies that were tried out, including at local county levels, that have not been evaluated. Without knowing which programs worked, we don't have a good sense of which ones we should be continuing, and we know the economic recovery is dragging on. Um, so my team is one of the ones helping to fill this gap. And we're collecting data on county level policies, which can be used to conduct research to inform future policymaking. So in particular, we're collecting data on over 300 counties for all 50 states and Washington DC for the entire period 2020 to 2021. This includes policies that targeted infection containment and closures like school and workplace closures and restrictions on gatherings. We're also collecting data on local economic support policies like housing, utility payment, and nutrition support. And finally, we're collecting data on county level public health policies like testing and mask policies. So we've only collected a little bit of preliminary data so far, um, but even in these data so far, we're seeing a lot of variation within and across states in the number and the stringency of policies passed. So here I'm just showing our results for California and Texas, and we didn't gather data on the counties in white for this preliminary data collection. So you can just focus on the different shades of green. So we saw that counties in California more consistently passed 
more containment policies than counties in Texas. And for those of you who don't know California well, um, there are differences in demographic and political characteristics between uh, coastal and inland counties where we see some variation within the state. Same goes for Texas. We see variation even within Texas of counties that passed more or less of these COVID-related county-level policies. So what we're hoping to do next, once we've finished data collection for all, for all 50 states, is to examine the effects of the specific types of policies on a range of health indicators, including things like mental health and access to healthcare. So even as we're conducting this additional research to provide us with more evidence to inform policymaking, we have a fair amount of evidence already, including some of the studies that I just talked about, that can guide further expansions of the safety net. So these policies can support those that have been most impacted by the pandemic and the continuing inflation and the, and the um, slow economic recovery. And it can help those families who had been struggling even since before the pandemic, which is a lot of the same families. And at a fundamental level, bolstering the safety net can also help the U.S. achieve sort of the basic level of support for families that's provided by pretty much every other high-income country except for us. So first, we can make some pandemic-era temporary programs that expired permanent. So for starters, uh, paid leave and the child tax credit are both programs, again, that exist in other high-income countries acknowledging that investments in families with children help ensure kids' long-term health and their productivity as members of society. One of the things the pandemic has also shown is that individuals often can't work through no fault of their own. Either there's anemic labor markets, employment discrimination, childcare challenges, poor health. Um, and moreover, the modern labor market has a lot of workers who aren't eligible for unemployment benefits as the system has been set up so far. People like independent contractors, part-time workers. So one solution could be to have all of these workers pay into and be eligible for unemployment insurance. And thinking more broadly, in the spirit of those stimulus checks, the federal government could also consider providing a source of basic income for non-working individuals especially during times of hardship and for those without children who aren't eligible for the child tax credit. And finally, nutrition programs like the pandemic EBT that I mentioned could be expanded to provide food for kids who participate in free and reduced price school meals when school is not in session, like during the summer or weekends throughout the school year. So second, the government could make it easier for individuals to get the benefits for which they're already eligible um, by reducing the numerous administrative hurdles that exist. So similar to what was done for WIC, in-person appointments could be waived or remote options could be provided. And that would help people who have childcare challenges, uh, work scheduling challenges, um, the elderly or people with disabilities, uh, or others who struggle to, to um, meet that requirement. Enrollment processes could also be streamlined so individuals can fill out a single application that would determine their eligibility for all safety net programs. Some states actually automatically enroll people for other programs that they're eligible for once they've signed up for a single program. That's really on a state-by-state -state basis. That shows that it can be done. Um, and simplified materials can also be made available in a variety of languages and with assistance available in different modalities, like both online and in person, depending on people's needs, Try sort of a more user-centered approach. 
And finally, program eligibility could be expanded to remove barriers related to immigration status. So for example, WIC is available to low-income pregnant and postpartum women and young children regardless of immigration status, but most safety net programs are only available to U.S. citizens or permanent residents. This is despite the fact that most un even undocumented workers pay taxes, but don't reap those benefits. And in 2021, we saw that policymakers were willing to expand eligibility when they removed some immigration criteria for the child tax credit expansion. And there's an argument to be made that supporting kids, regardless of immigration status, helps them grow up to be healthy and productive members of society. And many, in the majority of cases, the kids themselves are actually U.S. citizens. So thinking about everything we've discussed today, uh, I've boiled it down to these conclusions and implications. So first, COVID-19 pandemic uh, and related policies caused widespread economic hardship. It was greater among already disadvantaged groups, including women, individuals with lower education and income levels, and racial and ethnic minorities. Thankfully, uh, there were innovative policies at the federal and state levels that buffered families from hardship. But at the same time, many families were left behind, and most of these policies have since expired despite the fact that the economic recovery has been slow and uneven in terms of certain people have bounced back, but others have not yet. Also, so while we have some evidence on what worked, we need more research. You can always count on the researcher to say that, right? Additional research is needed to inform future policymaking so we can understand which policies were most effective and for whom. Uh, especially given the huge variation in local policies across the country, the fact that there was a lot of variation at the county level because that's where a lot of policy ended up being made or is still being made. And in the meantime, we do have plenty of evidence to inform specific recommendations to bolster the safety net. And this is not only going to help us address the continuing pandemic-related hardship, but it'll also help us tackle those pre-existing disparities that result from the U.S.'s generally weaker safety net compared with all of our other peer nations. So I want to thank you guys all for your attention. I want to acknowledge the funding that supported the research that I described today. And you can find out more about this work by checking out my team's website, following me on Twitter. And I'm, of course, happy to take any questions right now. Excellent uh, presentation. Um, I think one, you know, maybe general, well, one, maybe one specific example question, and, and that is, you mentioned that some states, you know, automatically enroll people in additional programs as they, you know, if they're eligible, some have simplified applications. So I think a question I have is just where are we in California on these things on, you know, remote enrollment, things that could make uh, enrollment and access to benefits easier for people who meet the eligibility criteria? Yeah, um, I wish I could say that California is the leader in all things. In this case, sometimes we're a bit behind. Um, so for example, I mentioned the fact that um, WIC um, across the country, states had started to make it so that you didn't have to get a paper voucher and go through like a really in, in, at times humiliating process to redeem that voucher at the grocery store, they loaded everybody um, like debit cards, basically. And um, many states started that like back 20 years ago. And California was the uh, almost the last to do that. It, it did it over the course of 2020, I think. Um, and that was sort of the deadline for states to do it. So um, I think, you know, in, in some respects, we're sort of more forward thinking. Um, but in a lot of cases, 
um, there's, there's room to grow. So uh, yeah. I mean, another example is um, actually the one of the policies I didn't talk about today, the largest poverty alleviation policy in the US is the earned income tax credit. It's a policy I do a lot of research on. And it basically functions like a tax refund, um, like low income working people who do their taxes get a refund of thousands of dollars. Um, and states have added, some states have added on like an extra supplemental earned income tax credit benefit to give people an even larger chunk of money. And California is a relative newcomer to that. Um, I think ours was rolled out, I believe in 2015 or 2016. Um, and, you know, since then we've sort of expanded it a lot and it's actually now one of the more generous uh, EITC policies out there. Um, but we're not always the, we're not always at the, at the front of the curve for these. Thanks. And I think interesting because certainly over time we've become, you know, a very, a democratic majority, you know, state, you know, and, and both real and perceived as being fairly, you know, socially liberal and, and, and progressive. So I find it fascinating that there are some ways in which we really yeah. aren't leading the pack on, on the social safety net. Yeah. And we actually have some of the highest poverty rates in the country in right. California, much higher than other states. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's definitely an argument to be made for, for increasing the generosity of those programs. Okay. We have a, our first question, and that is, how do you collect data on county and state level policies given the sheer number of jurisdictions? Yeah, so... Um, Great question. So there are actually 3,000 plus counties in the U.S. We have selected um, just about three, 300 plus or minus of those counties. Um, I learned in the process of designing this research that many counties in the U.S. are empty or like are mostly cows or pigs or something. Um, and so by selecting 300 counties, we're actually getting like well over half of the U.S. population in those counties. Um, it's still a lot. And so we actually have a team of um, four data collectors plus some part timers who are helping us and full time data collectors for like two years who are basically going to the websites of every county department of public health. And if it's not posted there, they go to all the other county websites um, or to like local news media to collect data on all of these policies for this entire time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, we're being funded by the National Institutes of Health and they they were very interested in collecting this because you can't study the effects of policies if you don't know what policies were passed and, and then they have not been to this point systematically documented. So, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, lots of manpower, lots of people power. <laughs> Hey, well, and I think then take a step back and, you know, you've, you've, you've stated, you know, repeatedly that, you know, the U.S. is the only or one of the few um, developed countries to not offer paid leave. You know, we're just relative to other countries. We don't have a strong safety net. And I think if you could, you know, talk a little bit about, about why that is. That's the question of the hour. Um, so I think there's, 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 lots of proposed reasons. Um, to me, it's it's interesting because we as a society say that we're really interested in promoting sort of family values and children and that sort of thing. Um, and yet we have um, much weaker benefits. Um, I, I actually, I, I've been reading a book recently, which I encourage people interested in this question to read about. It's called Administrative Burden. Uh, and it talks a little bit about this. I think um, there is a lot 
some of the values, uh, at least among policymakers and maybe some of the people who elected them, are that there needs to be a certain level of deservingness for people to receive benefits, um, and that there's a lot of um, historical racism uh, in that because of the history of slavery in this country, a lot of the people who are the most vulnerable, the lowest income are racial and ethnic minorities, um, are black people, are immigrants. Um, and so because of that history of racism, there's a sense that the, the, the poor, even the working poor are, are not deserving because it's tangled up in those ideas of racism. Um, and so that I think is part of it. Um, and to, to me, it's, sometimes I'm confused by that. <laughs> like sometimes I wake up every day, like I was explaining to my five-year-old, um, she was like, what are you going to be teaching everybody about? And I was saying, oh, about how we can help people who don't have enough money. And she said, well, that'll be quick. Just tell them to give them money. And so some days I wake up and I, and, and like, I have a hard time understanding, like, why don't we take these um, basic common sense protections? Um, but I think there is a narrative of deservingness sometimes tied up with our history of racism in this country, but sometimes also just not the sense that, you know, people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps or really sort of individualistic um, uh, view of, of self-help. So um, and if other people have other ideas, I'd be interested to hear about those too. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. And I think certainly when it comes to exclusion of immigrants from benefits, um, some of that issues of deservedness, particularly when it comes to undocumented immigrants plays into the narrative as well. I think um, Rita, building on what you said, you know, how, how do we change, you know, so how, do, how do we move forward? How do we implement these common sense solutions? I mean, you've certainly done uh, a lot of research. Um, and, and I think that, you know, research base is very important. I, I guess that the question to me then is then how do we, how do we change the narrative on, on, on this? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that, I think there's a few different kinds of solutions. One of them um, feels really silly to say, but the people who make these decisions are elected. And so who we elect makes a difference. So I think, um, voting and encouraging others to vote, to elect people who say they want to change these policies is important. Um, I think that, you know, at people for people who are at an academic medical center like us or other institutions, um, people who are in either small businesses or big businesses, I think recognizing that these policies are good for population health, good for workers. I didn't actually talk today about the non-health um, effects of some of these policies, but things like paid sick leave, paid family leave, they ensure that people stay at their jobs. Um, it ensures that, you know, there's a great literature that shows that women, after they've had a baby, if they have that paid family leave, their job is protected while they're gone and they can come back. And then the business doesn't have to go find new workers and train new people. So I think um, so people who have those kinds of leadership positions can advocate for those policies using their positions of leadership, either locally at their business or with policymakers. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, just in terms of what I personally do, at at least in the last few years, I've really been focusing my efforts on making sure that research like this gets into the right hands um, and to put together research briefs that we share with policymakers, um, with community organizations, um, so that they know how to, they, they have the evidence to then um, advocate for these changes. 
Um, just this past weekend, I was visiting uh, family in rural Virginia. And whenever I'm there, I take a look. They, you know, they still have a printed newspaper. People there still read a printed newspaper. It doesn't publish on Saturdays anymore, but it's still there. And, and you know, one of the things I read there was in one of the, the, the cities in this rural area, um, you know, had had um, there's a lot of issues there with rent increases now, you know, and that, and that I think is, you know, pandemic related, but we've seen, you know, we saw some decreases, but then we're seeing people uh, you know, shoot up. And they say, this is a part of rural Virginia where, uh, you know, folks are, you know, getting, you know, renewal notices saying, well, your rent's going up from $1,000 to $1,500. Now to mm-hmm. us, that seems cheap to them. I mean, that's a 50 percent and it's huge relative yeah. to the wages there. Yeah. And, and so anyway, there's been, you know, some community activists, you know, going to the city council and I've been saying, we, you know, we think, you know, there ought to, we ought to have some rent, you know, protections. And the response from the city council was, well, we're not in the business of this. We're, we're not in the, bu- we're not in the business of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I wonder how do we, you know, address, you know, I mean, I, it seems to me it's what you're doing with county policies is really important, but then how do we, you know, what do we do with the fact that you're going to have the gamut from cities like San Francisco, where I think it's fair to say that the boards, you know, we may dicker out, we may, people may disagree about how to do it, but there's, I think, a sense that, yeah, we have some responsibility mm-hmm. around housing to places where the local officials, you know, want to, you know, wash their hands of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so when I think about where I try to target my um, information sharing, I mm-hmm. think that there's value in doing it both at the local, county, state levels, as well as the federal level. Um, you know, a, the idea behind doing it at the county and state levels is that a lot of time there is a lot more appetite for policy changes sometimes in counties and states that are more open mm-hmm. um, to this idea of having like a, a minimum minimum wage, minimum, like, um, you know, child allowance, the child tax credit, that sort of thing, so that everybody has just like a level, has like a a basic standard of living. Um, And so some of the information sharing that I do is to those um, local and state policymakers and community organizations. That makes me sad because I know there are a lot of people in other states who don't have policymakers that are um, interested in pushing forward those policies. And so there's also an argument to to continue to try to push for this at the federal level so that we can get everybody to that basic level, um, uh, that basic standard of living. Um, And I mean, I think it's, you know, that there has been incremental progress in a lot of these things over time. We've had a lot of backsliding. Um, but the, it, for in a lot of these, there has been incremental progress. Um, <clears throat> so like the, you know, the WIC program, the expansions to, to allow the food package for pregnant and postpartum women to include fruits and vegetables. Previously, it didn't. But in 2009, it was expanded to get fruits and vegetables. But there's sort of these incremental changes over time. Um, and so I think that, you know, continuing to sort of you know, in my role as an academic, I can't advocate for those, but to do information sharing so that other people can use that to potentially advocate for these kinds of changes. And I I remembered what I was going to say before, um, which is that another way, again, depending on people's roles in society, as I mentioned, there's a lot of these challenges with people being eligible for programs and still not being able to even access them because of the challenges. 
Um, so again, for, for there's a lot of talk in healthcare settings, for example, um, to have the social worker help people get access to the programs that they're eligible for, help with the application process, or connect people with the community organizations who maybe have more of a track record in that area. Um, and that, that's also possible, you know, if people are coming from community organizations, um, that that's also possible. It's like there's there's like millions, if I, I don't know the exact number, but there's at least millions, if not billions of dollars being left on the table. Again, people are already eligible for these. We don't have to expand eligibility and they're just having a hard time getting those benefits. Um, and so and so working to, to improve that is another possibility. And knowing that you practice at the Family Health Center at uh, ZSFGH, I, are there things that, that the Family Health Center or other um, units at, CS, at ZSFGH are doing um, to at least help those patients um, access benefits? Yeah, I should mention that there's another research group in my Department of Family and Community Medicine um, headed by Laura Gottlieb, Dr. Laura Gottlieb. Um, I'm going to mess it up. It's called Siren Social Intervention Research Network or something like that. That sounds right. Yes. Okay. Um, and so their, their entire agenda is to try to address social needs in clinical settings. And so part of that involves screening for social needs because, the you know, in order to be able to help people, you have to know that they have a, a problem that needs, um, that needs help. And so they're working on developing tools to screen in clinical settings for, for all these different kinds of social needs that we've been talking about and others. Um, and then the question is, once you've identified somebody has a social need, what do you do about it? And so there's different kinds um, of interventions that are being tried there. Um, like I've been reading a couple of studies lately about how people are trying to set up tax filing assistance in these clinics that serve a lot of low income populations. Um, in part, again, like I mentioned, that earned income tax credit, recognizing that people are leaving thousands of dollars on the table every year. Um, and so trying to get those uh, patients connected um, with a resource that's already there, you just have to help them file their taxes, um, which nobody loves doing and it's complicated. Um, so, um, so there are those kinds of interventions being tried in, in clinical settings. You know, I wanna really thank uh, Professor Hamad for her time. I uh, really greatly uh, appreciate her coming uh, to uh, speak with us tonight. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.